Hello, and welcome to episode 7 of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. If you bubo me by now. Now, I had a great time putting together the last two specials, and I hope you enjoyed them. However, it is high time we returned to our trundle through the history of biological and chemical warfare. As you will recall, in earlier episodes, we have been covering some pretty vast time periods, but we are now beginning to become a little more granular in the storytelling. In this episode, we cover a mere eight centuries, from around the fall of the Roman Empire, which is about the 5th century, to the Black Death of the mid-14th century. As ever, this show would not be possible without the assistance of colleagues, and this week I am particularly grateful to Dr Jean-Pascal Zanders, who is always helpful, but has been especially helpful this week in relation to the spread of the Black Death. Seth Carris's historical writings have also been an invaluable reference. I was also lucky enough to find time to read The Complete History of the Black Death by Oleg Jürgen Benichtau over Christmas, which was quite the opus, but a great example of total history, and it has been a really helpful resource. As ever, you can check out my sources, as well as suggestions for further reading, in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the show today. So, we left our timeline sometime in the 3rd century AD. So far in our retelling of the history, a few things have become clear. The first is that humans have likely used poison arrows in warfare for a long time. However, such weapons tended to fall out of favour in emergent agrarian city-state-centred societies. There is, however, quite a compelling case to be made. The use of poison darts and arrows in warfare continued among many indigenous nomadic peoples, perhaps up to and including the 20th century. In relation to the use of infectious disease, well, where war has walked, disease has followed. However, so far we have not found any compelling evidence of a specific practice or incident. Instead, what we have tended to find are accusations of both use of poison and infectious disease as part of improvised weapons often directed at water. The Middle Ages centre on an era in which the centre of the world appears to be somewhere on the Eurasian steppe, with civilizations in the Old World constituting an ever-evolving patchwork of city-states, chiefdoms, fiefdoms and empires spanning from the west coast of what is today Ireland, east and across Eurasia to the coast of Japan. In addition, there were a handful of isolated civilizations, as well as innumerable nomadic peoples to be found across the rest of the globe, in Australasia, Africa and the Americas. From a global history perspective, it was a period of incredible cultural and political change, where humans struggled to escape the limits of muscle power and unpredictable weather cycles. It was also a time in which there were significant technological advances, despite the fact that these are often understood to pale in comparison to what came later during the Renaissance. At the start of this era, timekeeping was reliant on sundials, water and incense. By the end of it, you could get your hands on mechanical clocks if you knew where to look. It was also the period in which the global old world trade routes continued to evolve, centred on spices, horses, slaves and grain. This trade created links between the western and eastern worlds and these connections would provide fertile ground, not only for the profound cultural and technological innovations of the 16th century, 
but also global pandemics. Now, a few qualifications, disclaimers, and a promise from me before we get into the thick of it. The first thing to note is that even if we ever did find the smoking gun of an instant of chemical and biological warfare among the civilizations of this era, the practice would certainly still be both niche and unusual. Check out any major history of medieval warfare and references to the use of poison and disease tend to be apocryphal and fleeting. The majority of references tend to centre on poison-based assassination and clumsy attempts to corrupt water supplies, or else appear to be ad hoc explanations for the outbreaks of disease, which often accompanied the gravities of war. The second thing to note is that world histories written for Western audiences have tended to be both civilization-centric and West Eurasian-centric. They have been civilization-centric in as much as historical eras in these sweeping histories are marked out based on what is happening in the larger civilizations, with other peoples usually treated as an incidental footnote, often when they come into contact with the major civilizations. Naturally then, this sparsity is also reflected in existing histories of chemical and biological warfare, with poison arrows making a good case in point. It is the histories of the Romans which inform us that West European tribes and Slavic steppe peoples, among others, continue to use poison arrows in this period. There, incidentally, is also reference to the use of poison arrows by Mongol steppe peoples in the Chinese historical accounts, further evidence that this is perhaps not just a case of tall tales written by Roman frontier chroniclers for the folks back home. It is also to be expected that our current historical map of the history of biological and chemical warfare, as found in introductory textbooks, contains a Western European leaning. There are certainly further myths and potentially even bona fide practices for the right specialists to unearth, especially in relation to China. There is, as they say, no smoke without fire, and Chinese people have been messing about with both for a very long time indeed with work on smoke bombs appearing to be the most promising rabbit hole. I'm also pretty sure a deeper dive than I can manage into siege warfare in the Far East in this period may throw up comparable allegations of water poisoning to what is seen in Western Europe in this era. Now, as part of this series, I'm going to try and do my best to address both of these centrisms. At the very least, I promise to mop up some of these issues in future episodes, we will certainly be dealing with indigenous South American peoples in the next episode, for example. But some of this stuff, I think, is moving into specials territory. And if you can think of a historian or anthropologist who might be well-placed, do let me know. But for now, we return inevitably to Europe and the bread and butter of CBW allegations in this era, poisoning water supplies and launching dead stuff at besieged cities. Now, to place the allegations which follow into some context, we need to understand a little bit about the character of warfare in this era. The first thing to note is that Roman era fortifications, settlements and road systems remained a focal point of conflict in medieval Europe. In terms of military organisation, it is clear that while the early Middle Ages were chaotic and often amounted to little more than local indentured militias, that by the end of this period, military organisation increasingly resembled Roman standing armies of the bygone era, paid for by tax and dependent on a shadow army of bureaucrats and administrators. 
These armies, however, did tend to be small. Campaigns remained expensive and risky, and so often were formed in response to a world-limited defence or conquest mission. At the Battle of Hastings in 1066, a decisive battle in this period, King Harold fielded somewhere between 5,000 and 12,000 men. To put that in context, around 10 times this figure were fielded by each side at Waterloo in 1815. In this period, steelworking became more sophisticated and widespread, which impacted upon melee weapons and also underpinned the emergence of the full suits of armour seen in the late 15th and 16th centuries. In terms of weaponry, there was also gradual shifts in personal arms, underpinned by advances in production techniques as well as interactions with the East. The crossbow had been around for centuries before its widespread adoption in 12th century Europe. Likewise, many of the artillery pieces remained essentially the same as the ballistas, catapults and trebuchets of antiquity, with the most powerful siege artillery in the early period being the counterweighted trebuchet, but all these weapons would gradually be replaced by gunpowder during the 16th century. Sieges continued to be a prominent feature of medieval warfare, as they had been in the Roman era, and indeed, experiences of both serving and fighting Roman armies appears to have directly fed into how many militaries in this era went about siege warfare. Right then, with that done, we are going to get down to the two types of practice commonly discussed in this period, in the potted histories of CBW. Poisoning water supplies and diseased cadavic, not a word, but I wanted to say it, projectiles. So, accusations of poisoning water supplies have been with us since antiquity. They're discussed in various stratagems, mythologies and chronicles. Typically, you see these accusations in one of three contexts. First, you see discussion in relation to the breaking of sieges, as we discussed in relation to the mythology of the Siege of Karar back in episode 3. Second, you see discussion of this as part of attempts by a retreating or attacking enemy to hamper an adversary. There is some evidence that poisoning or fouling water sources was a routine practice in some conflicts and regions during this period, especially in arid areas which were reliant on wells. Not that poisoning or diverting water supplies was always required. Saladin, the great Muslim general, supposedly managed to defeat marauding crusaders in the 12th century merely by leading them away from their water supply. A third type of accusation relates to the claims of well poisoning in times of conflict and crisis, inevitably directed at minority groups within a society with predictable and unsavoury consequences. As we will see, this would be a myth that would emerge time and time again in the context of local epidemics. In the CBW histories, there are a couple of examples of stories about water supplies being either poisoned or somehow involved in the spread of disease. Tales about the latter are complicated by the reality that infectious disease and poisons were often treated interchangeably by contemporary writers and later historians due to the vagaries of miasmic theory. The first allegation occurred in 1155, when Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor, besieged the Italian city of Tortona, not too far from modern-day Milan. Allegations focus on the poisoning of the town's water supply. Now, this siege has been subject to several uh, mythical retellings over the years. 
The scholar, Seth Karras, has kindly left a trail of breadcrumbs here, which leads us to the original source of the claim, believed to have been committed to parchment by a chronicler around the time it occurred, or at least within living memory of the author. Now, we should never trust a chronicler, but here is the translation. After this, the king, desiring to vanquish nature by nature's aid, that is, to constrain by lack of drinking water those who were hedged in by nature's defences, proceeded to make the aforesaid spring useless for human needs. There were thrown into it the rotting and putrid corpses of men and beasts, but not even this could the pitiful thirst of the townsmen be restrained. Another device was found. Burning torches with flames of sulphur and pitch were cast into the aforesaid spring, and thus the waters themselves were made bitter and useless for human needs. If true then, this incident would be very much in keeping with the working assumptions of many medieval scholars about water warfare in the ancient world. But alas, this tantalising claim is all we have. It is perhaps worth noting, but it would have made sense that both sulphur and pitch were present, fire was a common aspect of siege warfare in this period, but I also suspect that any of these additions could very well have been made as a poetic flourish on the part of the author. I am certainly not qualified, but there is quite a lot of symbolic reference to pitch in various parts of this history, intermingled with theological reflection. This is an account then which, much like David Bowie, refuses to be pinned down to a specific genre, and it should probably be taken with a pinch of salt. What is clear, however, is that the stories of water poisoning which have made it into the official histories of chemical and biological warfare have often done so by essentially random processes, even the naive keyword search of major histories of the period bring up allegations of poisoning which, for whatever reason, appear not to have made the cut and entered the hallow halls of potted CBW history. Next up on our review of biological and chemical warfare in the Middle Ages is the use of catapults to throw biological materials over walls and into besieged cities. Now, there is many reasons one might choose to do this, but not all of these, by most understandings, would count as biological or chemical warfare. To put it crudely, while rotting animals and human carcasses undoubtedly prove a health and safety hazard, the primary effect in this era of questionable sanitary standards was likely to be intimidation, and to contribute to the general misery of the besieged. And, even if the spread of disease had been an intention of the attackers, based on what we know today about infectious disease, it is unlikely this approach would have actually worked. For example, at the Siege of Cambrai in 1339-1340, during the early stages of the Hundred Years' War, the English army laid siege to the city, which is today found on the French-Belgian border. According to a chronicler, which is still worth quoting, the Duke carried with him out of Cambrai and Doway diverse great engines, and made them to be reared again the fortress, so that these engines did cast night and day great stones, which beat down the roofs, chambers and halls and towers, so that they were forced to keep to the vaults and cellars. The engines did cast dead horses and beasts stinking. Another claim from this period relates to the siege of Karlstein in Bohemia in 1422, Hussite attackers used catapults to throw dead bodies and 2,000 carriage loads of dung over the walls. The effect then in these examples, 
which may be real or imagined historical events, is not achieved primarily through its infective or poisoning mode of action upon those at the receiving end of the airily delivered awful excrement. In saying this, however, you still quite often see claims that such actions brought about disease outbreaks within the city, with the most notable case being the allegations that the Black Death entered Europe at the Siege of Kafar 1346. This story centres on the southern coast of what is today Crimea, and a city with a long history as a trading port. Like many strategically important port towns in the Black Sea and Mediterranean, this city has had many names, and has been coveted by many peoples. During the early 14th century, the Mongol Empire sold the city to Genoese colonists, and the city became part of a naval trading empire network which linked the known eastern and western worlds. This network spanned both the Mediterranean and Black Seas, with goods traded on the Crimean coasts, not only making their way back to the northern Italian coast, but as far afield as Algiers, Lisbon, La Rochelle, Southampton and Bruges. Eager to protect their latest business acquisition, the Genoese constructed a fortress, the ruins of which still look out across the Bay of Phadesia and towards the distant shores of Turkey. The construction of a fortress was certainly prudent. It is fair to say that relations between Christian and Muslim states were often less than cordial in this period, and it was also a period beset by city-state conflicts, as well as straightforward extortion and piracy. As it happened, it would be the previous owners that would come a-knocking, besieging the city twice in the 1340s. In 1346, the city was besieged for a third time, and it is this siege which is associated with the infamous claim that plague-infected corpses were catapulted into the city. The most famous translation of a contemporaneous report states breathlessly, O oh God, see how the heathen Tartar races pouring together from all sides suddenly invested the city of Kafar and besieged the trapped Christians there for almost three years. There, hemmed in by an immense army, they could hardly draw breath, although food could be shipped in, which offered them some hope. But behold, the whole army was affected by a disease which overran the Tartars and killed thousands upon thousands every day. It was as though arrows were raining down from heaven to strike and crush the Tartars' arrogance. All medical advice and attention was useless. The Tartars died as soon as the signs of disease appeared on their bodies, swellings in the armpit or groin caused by coagulating humours, followed by a putrid fever. The dying Tartars, stunned and stupefied by the immensity of the disaster brought about by the disease and realising they had no hope of escape, lost interest in the siege. But they ordered corpses to be placed in catapults and lobbed into the city in the hope that the intolerable stench would kill everyone inside. What seemed like mountains of dead were thrown into the city and the Christians could not hide or flee or escape from them although they dumped as many of the bodies as they could in the sea, and soon the rotting corpses tainted the air and poisoned the water supply, and the stench was so overwhelming that hardly one in several thousand was in a position to flee the remains of a Tartar army. Moreover, one infected man could carry the poison to others, and infect people, and places with a disease by luck alone. No one knew, or could ever discover, a means of defence. Not only would this appear to be a claim of biological warfare, but because of when and where it happened, 
it could potentially have been the most consequential act of biological warfare in human history. This is because the siege coincides with the epidemic of 1346, which moved out of the Eurasian steppe and on into Western Europe and Northern Africa. And as a naval trading city, smack bang between the Western and Eastern worlds, Kaffa was impeccably placed to be the way station for this pandemic. The figures for the number killed is still very much in contention, and there was significant variation between different regions, but sensible estimates range between around one quarter and half of the population across Europe. Now, it should come as no surprise to regular listeners of this show that this is not the weight of evidence which has guaranteed entrance of this story into CBW folklore. It should also, by now, not be a surprise that I have taken a deep dive into attempts to assess the likeliness of this tale. From the off, I think we need to be clear that we are at the mercy of one contemporary source. A Genoese notary called Gabriel de Mussi, who wrote one of the earliest chronicles of the Black Death. In this work, he provided the account of the siege of Kafar cited a moment ago. Careful work has traced how this story came to broader attention since its discovery and publication in 1842. And it appears that we have historians of ancient artillery to thank for bringing the tale to wider readership in the early 20th century. De Mussi was not present at the siege, and even if he had have been, he would have been much more preoccupied with other things, as he would have been a 12-month-old infant. This witness, then, may at best have been reliant on the tale of merchants who were there, or perhaps the hearsay of the great and good in the capital. The reliance on such small fragments is not all that uncommon in history in this period, thanks in no small part to the tendency of written works to get themselves burned, binned or recycled. Parchment wasn't cheap in this era after all. The reliance on just one source, however, does potentially kick the legs out from under the whole story. But I can't leave it there. And neither seemingly can other scholars who have looked at the tale. And so let's have a look at some of the major lines of questioning that they have opened up. The first thing to think about is whether or not a flying plague-infested corpse makes a good plague delivery system. Well, we know that the main transmission route for the spread of plague is plague-infected rat fleas. Catching plague from a dead human victim is pretty unlikely, and human-to-human spread is the exception rather than the rule. The bacteria, Yersinia pestis, is carried in the guts of rat fleas, found in some parts of the Eurasian steppe. The disease, then, is dependent on the movement of rat colonies. However, infected fleas end up spreading the bacteria to the rats, which, like humans, are vulnerable to the disease. As these colonies become depleted, the fleas get hungry. This, then, leads to humans catching the disease. Because the spread of plague is tied to rat populations, the besiegers would have had little prospect of manipulating a local outbreak. I mean, yes, potentially some rat fleas might have made it into the city on the clothing of those unfortunate soldiers who had been recruited for that one last aerial mission, but this is quite the stretch. Indeed, chucking live rats over the wall would probably have been a slightly less disgusting 
and marginally more effective means of spreading plague. That is assuming that fleas will stay attached to a flying rat and that rats can nail that type of landing rather than unceremoniously splatting into the ground. I am pleased to say I neither have or want the data which would enable me to come down either side of that particular debate. Another question is how likely is it that the besieging force would have launched human bodies into the city? Well, this is a slightly more contentious issue. Throwing rotting animals and even the odd vanquished enemy over besieged city walls might very well be something that annoyed, tired, hungry and homesick besiegers might have got around to doing at some point, if only to break the monotony of picking off body lice and contracting nasty waterborne diseases in their camps. However, if the source is to be believed, this practice must have been more purposeful and systematic. The source states what seemed like mountains of dead were lobbed into the city. Now, this isn't the best metric. I don't think there is a unit conversion widget on Google, but we can of course probably safely assume there is a healthy margin of exaggeration baked into this description. How reasonable is it then to believe such a practice was employed? One major historian on the subject thinks not so much. This is because, would you really be happy chucking your dead brother in arms over a wall? And if so, when? How fresh did you want them to arrive? And this takes us to another key problem in the story. As we've just noted, dead bodies are not really a transmission risk. It is the fleas which are the issue. And fleas don't really hang around once the buffet has gone cold. And so you'd have to get those fellas airborne pretty much as they expired. This is not only hard to believe because, well, yuck, but also the attackers would likely have been operating under miasmic understanding of disease spread, as was our witness. In that case, you want to let those bodies sit around for a bit in the sun to develop their funk before launching them. And this, while certainly not a sterilising practice, would greatly reduce the likeness of plague being carried with them. So, was the Black Death spread into Europe as a result of biological warfare? Probably not. However, there is compelling evidence that Kaffir and this siege were pivotal to the spread of plague across Europe, with historians tracing the spread of the disease westward from Kaffir and along the coastal port cities onto Europe. It seems likely then that it was the rats the Mongol forces brought with them which were the culprits. Plague-sick rats would have fled the Mongol camp to avoid being eaten by their fellow rodent stowaways, and they would have then found their way into the city by any number of routes. A plague epidemic could have followed as early as six weeks later. So yes, the most famous historical incident of biological warfare in all likeliness did not happen, and if it did, can probably be discounted as an example of biological warfare for two key reasons. First, because the act, as described, would have been very unlikely to lead to the outbreak in the city. And second, even if it had have led to an outbreak, it would have been more by dumb luck than anything else, because while the attackers may certainly have had cruel intentions in their hearts, they certainly did not have in their heads even a rudimentary understanding of how plague actually spread. 
And that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing you next time as we continue our antisocial history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. <laughs>